Fago Soda, the best recipe for collard greens, and searching for Indian food on the road. This week, we're talking to Marshall Crenshaw. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson, host of Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. And this week, we're talking to musician Marshall Crenshaw about his favorite collard recipe and finding the best Indian food while out on the road and Detroit-style pizza. Now, Marshall's from Michigan, but he had never tried Detroit-style pizza until long after he had moved away, which isn't surprising. I'd never heard of Detroit-style pizza either, and I grew up in Michigan too. But first, let me remind you to subscribe to Destination Eat Drink. You can get the podcast wherever you do your podcast thing, whether it's Google or Apple or Stitcher or Pandora or Spotify, or even radiomisfits.com. There we've got all the podcast episodes archived for you, including some of the musicians we've talked to, like Kevin Russell of my favorite Austin band, Shiny Ribs. He also played with Doug Som and the Gourds. That's episode 15. Paul Cullen, who is the bass player for Bad Company, he talks about Tuscany in episode 22. And Jason Ringenberg, who talks about Nashville on episode 16 of the podcast. All that at radiomisfits.com. Marshall Crenshaw's first album called Marshall Crenshaw was released in 1982, had fantastic tracks on it like Marianne and Cynical Girl and Someday Someway, and he followed that up a couple years later with Field Day. The song Whenever You're On My Mind was also a hit, and Marshall's been putting out fantastic records ever since then. His most recent release was number 392, a collection of EPs that he had recorded recently. Marshall's also working on re-releasing some of his 90s records, including some brand new bonus material on those reissues. Marshall's been an actor as well. He was Buddy Holly in the Hollywood blockbuster La Bamba, and he's currently working on a documentary about record producer Tom Wilson. So let's talk about stumbling upon Italian restaurants in New York and traveling with the bottle rockets for Indian food and soul records coming out of Detroit with Marshall Crenshaw. Destination, eat, drink. So, Marshall, you and I actually have something in common. You were born in Detroit. You grew up in a suburb called Berkeley. When I was a little kid, um, my family lived in Birmingham, which is only a couple of miles away from Berkeley. What, what do you remember about, uh, what's your vivid memories about life in Berkeley, Michigan, in the suburbs of Detroit? <laughs> well, gosh, uh, where, where do I begin? Uh, to me, when I think of Marshall Crenshaw, uh, a lot of what I think about is um, maybe how the Beatles influenced you, because I, in my mind, envision you as a young boy sitting in front of a TV watching the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Was that a big momentous event for you it was but you know when i watched the beatles on ed sullivan i had a practice pad in front of me and i had drumsticks in my hand and i had a little metal ashtray for a ride cymbal i was already playing you know i was playing guitar already i grew up with rock and roll music in the 50s i've told this story a lot of times but you know my dad was uh, a rock and roll fan, which was peculiar for somebody from his generation and, you know, his age range to to be a rock and roll fan then, but he was. And uh, so that was the soundtrack of my childhood. The Everly Brothers, you know, Chuck Berry, all the stuff. I heard it all as new music. That's really the stuff that is like the foundation for me. I still like to hear those records to me they just have such gravitas at this point in time Bo Diddley records and Little Richard and all that stuff but anyhow yeah so I did see the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show I was really excited about the whole thing but it wasn't like necessarily an epiphany or anything you know I was I was perfectly happy with the rock and roll music that was around before the Beatles came along and uh 
but then they did come along and they just kind of added a lot of excitement. That's the main thing is just this energy that they created in pop culture was really overwhelming. And, uh, you know, as a fan going right along the timeline with them. So you were into, for me, um, I'm just a little bit younger than you, but for me it was like those Beatles records were kind of the portal for going into Little Richard and Chuck Berry and stuff like that. But for you, you were already exposed to it, so you didn't have to have that portal open by the Beatles. No, and not only that, but I, I mean, I wasn't just exposed to it. I was crazy about it, you know. Like I was a real fan of the music as a child. I used to watch American Bandstand every day. Just the way my mind works or the way my brain is wired or whatever, you know, the stuff just really stuck in my head. And I could hear pretty good, you know, musically inclined. I have, like, pretty vivid recall of the records. But the other reason I have such good recall of them is because I've never stopped listening to them. You know, like, I could put on a Bo Diddley record right now. It would sound brand new to me. But anyhow, yeah, the thing about the portal, that's right. No, they didn't provide a portal for me. But I really dug, you know, like their... Now, when I listen to their early stuff, you know, like from 63, before they came over to America, you listen to the Motown covers they did, and they play the stuff really... I think they play it great, and they play it with so much respect and love that that is touching to me in itself, you know? Like, I... You listen to them do Please Mr. Postman, and it's like they're saying a prayer or something. They just have so much, uh, again, you know, respect for the for the sources. That was That's the thing that, one of the things that I love about them was just they were always, like, respectful of their sources and, you know, like, humble in a way, you know, and just in the face of it. It was almost a, it was almost a reverence, you know, because, I mean, even if you watch John Lennon doing those uh, Mike Douglas shows in the early 70s when he had Chuck Berry on, you're, you're hmm. looking at him and he's looking at Chuck Berry like he's got this, this look in his eye like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm with this guy. And he's John Lennon, you know. I know. I like that. You know, that humility is cool to me. So let's talk a little bit about food. Um in in Detroit and Michigan, uh, was your was your mom a good cook when you were growing up? Did <laughs> no, she wasn't, wasn't really into it. You know, my mom is, always has been a sweetheart, but uh, you know, like the domestic science thing was just never. <laughs> she, you know, she'll say this herself and has said it to me herself, but it just she just wasn't into it really. Right. She wanted to be out in the world, and uh, so there were a few years when she was a stay at home mom, but. As soon as she could get out of there, she did. She she went to college and got a teaching degree, went to Wayne State University. And she said, you know, told me this just a short while ago. She said when she first started going to her classes at Wayne State, it was just really joyful for her. And uh, Anyway, no, she was never really into food. And, uh, I guess neither was I. I mean, I had really terrible taste as a kid. <laughs> The worst taste. I mean, I don't remember ever eating any vegetables. I wouldn't drink milk unless it had some kind of chocolate flavoring in it. My favorite thing to eat was a hamburger with nothing on it but a ton of salt. That was that was like you know I would look forward to that. Oh, and also candy bars and eggnog and donuts and you know I can't like between my mother's bad food. No offense, but. <laughs> And just the junk that I ate, I mean, I'm amazed, I'm amazed that my health has always been good. And you're a skinny guy, too. It's not like you're eating all this junk food. I didn't really know what food was, you know, back then. I didn't have any way of knowing. Because if we went to a restaurant, it would just be like, you know, a bad restaurant, mostly. Pizza, you know, pizza was okay. Um, White Castle, <laughs> that was a treat for us to go to White Castle. Pizza's a good thing to talk about because, like I said, I lived in, we lived in Birmingham when I was a little kid. We moved away when I was 10, and I didn't discover until years later this thing called Detroit-style pizza. Because when I was a little kid, it didn't matter. Pizza is just, you get some crust, you get some tomato sauce, you get some cheese, they put it in front of you, and you're like, this is freaking great. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know there was something called Detroit pizza until much, much later. Did you ever have any Detroit-style pizza? Do you remember that? Uh, places like Buddy's or anything like that? No, not when I was living there or when I was growing up. In fact, 
you know, I really don't know when Buddy's actually opened, but it's only just become a thing where people talk about Detroit-style pizza. But yeah, right. it was originated by originated by Buddy's, and I've had, you know, I've had it during the last few years. I just, it's tasty, right? It's really good. That little char thing they do with the olive oil on the crust—that's really nice. But all the pizza I had as a kid was just regular, you know, it's just regular conventional kind of flat pizza. I never heard of Detroit-style pizza. Well, that's good to know that someone who's a <laughs> who's a local like you is like me and didn't even know about it until a few years ago, you know? Yeah, I don't know when it all really started. Like I said, I don't know when Buddy's opened and when they started doing that thing, but it is good, I'll tell you. I mean, I go to Buddy's whenever I remember to go, you know, like when I'm in Michigan. I'm, if i got some time, I'll go there and eat. So you still make it back to Michigan? Is your do you have still have family there? I do. My uh, in laws are there, and my brother Robert lives in the Detroit area. But you know, mostly when I go back, it's to play a show. Sure. But that happens. You know, that happens usually about every year and a half. Last time I or the first time I went to Buddy's was with my now late sister in law, Patty. She lived in Bloomfield Hills, and there's a Buddy's over there. Uh, you know, I'd go back. It's it's great stuff. And uh, what about, oh, you know what I wanted to ask you? Because I remember when I was a kid there, um, Fago was like the big soft drink, the big soda. And I remember going down the aisles of A&P or Kroger, and there were just like 30 flavors there. And we were just pestering my mom to death to buy us all these different flavors of Fago. Did you, did you grow up on Fago? Well, we had it. You know, uh, I like the Fago Rock and Rye. That was a thing. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I haven't thought, you know, I, I hate soda pop now. I wouldn't drink it right. under any circumstances. But uh, but Rock and Rye, is that, that is that just a strictly kind of Detroit area thing? Or I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not familiar with that one. Okay. Well, I, that was my favorite. And I, they had good root beer, too, Fago. The other thing I remember about them, about Fago, was... In the fifties, when they had this commercial that was done by Jim Henson, you know, they had the Muppets oh, right. in it, and uh, it was a great commercial. You know, this guy comes into the store and walks up to the counter, and uh, the guy behind the counter says, "You want Fago or the cheap stuff?" <laughs> and the customer goes, "I'll take the cheap stuff." And then the bottle, the front of the bottle, pops open, and there's this little birdie inside. And it goes, choo, 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 choo. I still remember, it's funny the things that stick in your head, but uh, Fago or the cheap stuff, I remember that. I think you can still see that uh, video on YouTube. I'll have to dig that up and put that in the show notes because it is funny to see it, even as just an archive of Jim Henson's early stuff. Yeah. You talked about the music that you were into, but, you know, Detroit, when you were growing up, was a real hotbed. And to me, it's strange because you've got people like MC5, um, you, pal, you were pals with those guys, uh, Stooges, Iggy Pop, um, and then guys like Bob Seger starting out at the same time. What was your, because your influence is more going back to the 50s stuff, how did you take in this type of stuff that was going on in Detroit? Well, I liked it. You know, the, the local scene in the 60s, you know, of all the rock scenes and all the regional scenes, you know, I, I really do think Detroit is the coolest of all and the most influential, the, you know, that has had the most kind of, I don't know, I'm just running my mouth, but I, I, I do, I still have a great fondness, fond memories, you know, of pop music and top 40 radio in Detroit growing up. And it definitely had its own flavor, unlike any other place. There were lots of local hits that uh, were really fantastic. There's there one record called Mind Over Matter by Nolan Strong. And uh, people from outside of the Detroit area don't really know that record, but it was it was like the national anthem. It was an anthem in Detroit. And uh, there are just so many records like that, so much music that couldn't have come from any place else but Detroit. It just was a really great, you know, I mean, like I said, I have fond memories of the music from there. But uh, it would always be, you know, the DJs on the radio would always uh, express a lot of enthusiasm for local stuff. 
you know, there were lots of local labels. I mean, I, you know, it was diverse. It was diverse too. That's the other thing about Top 40 Radio. It was like a meeting ground for uh, lots of different things, you know. And uh, they were they'd be like, um, you know, country records once in a while, and there'd be lots and lots of R&B, of course, and uh, you know, like all the rock bands you just mentioned, and uh, there'd be, you know, like Dean Martin and. Uh, right, right. You know, it'd be, it, just, it was, like I said, diverse. And that's that was another thing that I think was great about it, that I that I love about it. Did you ever uh, spend any time, I'm sure you did, in the Grandy Ballroom? Oh, my God. I'm No, I'm sorry to say that I never made it to the Grandy Ballroom. I just, I had, didn't have any mobility while all that was going on. You know, I was You're like in the 14, suburbs. 15. Yeah. I was, well, yeah, plus, you know, I didn't, like I said, I didn't have a driver's license and didn't I knew one kid that had a driver's license, but uh, there was a school year where I was under house arrest, kind of you could say, <laughs> because my uh, grades were all, you know. Anyway, I was I was basically flunking out of high school, and my parents were alarmed, understandably. Sure. So yeah. they decided to ground me. I <laughs> thought they thought that might, uh, you know, change my attitude, but it didn't. Um, I, you know, none of this is anything I'm proud of. But uh, during that time, my my two friends, the one guy I knew that did have a driver's license, and then you know another guy, they went to the uh, show where the MC5 recorded the Kick Out the Jams album. Right. And I and I was invited, and I would have gone, but I couldn't get out of the house, you know. So, but then as soon as uh, all of that changed, and I got out of high school and had a driver's license, then I started going to this place, the East Town Theater, which which was kind of the successor to the Grandy Ballroom. Not as good, but... Because the Grandy you know, closed like, in the early 70s or something. Yeah, it was pretty much all over by the end of 1969, or the end of 1970. Yeah, there was such a shift right around that time. I mean, the, the local rock scene, you know, it just kind of like went up and then crashed down real hard. And uh, that happened by the end of 1970. It just was gone. What do you attribute something like that happening? Oh, it's just a combination of things, really. You know, mainly, and I noticed this too, I just noticed that none of the bands that were beloved in the Detroit area, they just got out into the world and somehow got their asses handed to them or they weren't ready for prime time or who knows. The world wasn't ready for the MC5 in the late 60s, I don't think. No, I mean, the world has caught up to them now and uh the stooges too of course but uh you know i can't i don't know it's, it's too long that's too long of a, that's too big of a topic right but anyhow by 1970 yeah there was really there was just barely kind of any vestiges left of the rock scene that had existed a year before and then about 72 73 motown left detroit that was like a mm, right. like a dagger in the, in the heart you know of the music scene in Detroit. That was it. You know, that really, I, to me, that was a real uh, turning point for the, it just really ripped the heart out of the, the city, you know, the culture of the city. Yeah. The self image of the city when Motown left. Cause it was sad. It know? was so important. I mean, you know, everyone talks about how the Beatles were the biggest thing in the sixties, but Motown may have even sold more records than the Beatles did. I, I don't know precisely how many it is but every time you look at the charts from the 60s there's like okay there's the beatles and then there's the supremes or whoever else you know happened to be in the in the top 40 charts at the time right and the and motown was going strong before the beatles too that's that's something that bugs me you know it's a silly thing this is an old man talking <laughs> but it, it bugs me that people look back to the 60s and just see it through that lens you know where everything pivots on the Beatles, and that's it's, right. it's so you know it's true, but it isn't. You know it isn't. It isn't. Motown actually was something that the Beatles it's, uh, aspired to. You know, I remember yeah. when they first came out. I heard uh, an interview with them, and you know, one of the questions was, "Who do you listen to now?" Who's out there? And like everybody that they named was, you know, like they just name checked the whole roster of Motown. You know, and then they threw in the impressions and that was it that was what they this is common knowledge but you know that's where they what they were 
inspired by, you know, and I think, what they aspired to. And the other thing was there were all kind. you talked about regional hits, and that was a big deal, you know. I, I lived in Detroit, then I grew up in Chicago, and there were regional hits in Chicago courtesy of WLS, and oh, yeah. that were not heard any anywhere else. And then you had um, you had guys who were sort of flying under the radar. You had these big groups. You had the Beach Boys and the Beatles and the Supremes and Temptations and all these guys, but uh, smaller guys who were who were creating great music. And the specific question I wanted to ask you, Marshall, is on your first album, you covered uh, Arthur Alexander's "Soldier of Love," right? And yeah, but the, I got it from the Beatles. I, I never heard that Arthur Alexander. Right. Heard. So that's my question, because your arrangement is like the Beatles arrangement, but that song was never on a Beatles official release. So my question to you is, how did you get it? Was it on a bootleg? Because it must have been. Yeah. I, and, you know, I was in this thing called Beatlemania right. for a couple of years, and there were people in the in the cast, you know, my, my peers and, and the whole thing who really, really, really fanatical fans of the Beatles, and they had bootlegs of uh, the BBC radio stuff before anybody, you know, it came out on a CD in the 90s, but uh, these guys had that stuff back then. And uh, that's how I heard Soldier of Love. Bad vinyl bad vinyl bootlegs, I remember those in the, uh, in the 80s, definitely. Yeah. And did that turn you on to Arthur Alexander? Because you were on the Arthur Alexander tribute album in the 90s. Well, I mean, I knew of him because I knew you better move on. That was a hit that I heard on the radio. But uh, again, I didn't hear his version of Soldier of Love till after I'd already done mine and released a record. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Yeah. And I thought, well, oh boy, oh boy, you know. I mean, it's just on another level, that record, his record of it. It's unbelievable. I find it, you know, like, honestly, 999 times out of a thousand, to me, like the American original versions of stuff that the British groups did. I, I, I like the American versions better, almost completely across the board with hardly any exceptions. But the Beatles, uh, to me, they did the best R&B covers of any British group. I don't think anybody else even came close to them. It's funny you say that because I talk about that with my friends as well. And I'm like, you know, and then you, you, you love these Beatles songs, but then you listen to the originals and you're like, wow. It's on a, it's a whole new thing. Even, even Twist and Shout, which is one of the great all-time vocal performances, I still prefer yeah. the original. It's just different, you know. It's just got this other, it's got this kind of gravitas to it. And again, I, I, I give the Beatles very high marks with their stuff that they did, the cover stuff that they did. I, re, I love it. But uh, for me, the British thing, you know, it's like it really, what's held up for me is, uh, when they started to all write their own stuff, you know, like the Rolling Stones, for instance, yeah. that's when it got interesting. But, you know, I, my a couple of years ago, I put on their first album during dinner time, just as a background thing. And, and my wife had never heard it before. And she just was laughing at it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what is, they just sound like little kids, you know? It's, it's anyway. Enough of that. We thought we were going to talk about food. Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's dive into it. I I tend to get sidetracked on this sometimes, but uh, you're you're a New York guy, and I mean you've been associated with New York for a long time. So let's talk about New York. When you're out in New York, and we're recording this at a time unfortunate time of lockdown, but when this thing opens up again at some point, uh, where's the first place you're going to go, Marshall? You know, I mentioned before that when I was a kid, I didn't really know what food was, <laughs> you might say. Right. And, uh, but that started to change when I started to travel around the country and get out in the world. Like when I was in Beatlemania with San Francisco, when I was with Beatlemania in San Francisco, I remember that as a kind of a turning point where I started to have, you know, it, it just I just realized that there was a whole other level to to food and that a, that a great meal could be a great experience, you know. So that's that's interesting. People have this sort of epiphany of when food opens up for them, much like music. And I had a I had a similar experience to that. Do you remember a certain big bang where this happened for you, or was it just evolving over a period of time for you in San Francisco? Yeah, it was just sort of like a a stretch of time, you know, when my 
viewpoints started to reshape themselves, you know, just due to experiencing the world a little bit. There would be, sometimes there would be group dinners with the cast of the show. Those are always lots of fun. You know, somebody would find a place and, and say, oh, we all, we should go to this place, you know. And then we all would go, and it would just be, always be a great place, you know. There were lots of good Asian cuisine to be had, and there was good uh, seafood on Fisherman's Wharf. At least I thought so at the time. And, uh, it just sort of hit me then, started to hit me then. I'd say that uh, this, if I was going to go to a place in New York, I'm, the first thought that I had was of this place that isn't uh, there anymore, and it's got nothing to do with the public health crisis that we're in right now. This place actually closed a couple of years ago, but it was a joint called Bombay Palace Indian restaurant. And I was taken there for lunch one day. Uh, this um, musician magazine, I don't know if you remember that one. Sure. But they did an article. It was a joint article between me and Billy Bragg and Graham Parker. Wow. Good combination. Yeah, it was. And, you know, so we had lunch and talked and did this interview thing. But it, it, you know, it happened at this at Bombay Palace, and uh, you know, I've always loved Indian food. When my wife and I lived in New York City in the '80s, for part of that time, we lived in the in the East Village. And East Sixth Street at that time was like a real, uh, you know, hotbed for Indian restaurants. There were like 20 of them in this one block, and the one that we would go to always was Matali Matali. Now, we're over on the west side at 6th Avenue and Bleecker Street was, uh, or 7th Avenue and Bleecker Street was Metali West, which was also really good. That place is a five guys now. Oh, oh, but uh, anyway, Indian food is, uh, I'm trying to think of my favorite meals I've ever had in my life. And I guess a lot of them have been in Indian restaurants. So what are your, some of your favorite Indian dishes? So you, you spend a lot of time in Indian restaurants. You must have you must have some faves. Yeah, it, var- it varies. You know, I, I order different things. You know, another meal that really sticks in my mind, I meant to look up the name of this place in Albany. Okay. Right now, we, I live about an hour south of Albany, New York, and uh, there's this old school Italian place there. It's been there forever. The best. And when you drive by it, you know, you look at the old neon sign. And if you're like me, you think, I got to go in there. <laughs> and uh, but and it is a great place. But there was this one night when we went up there to see a show. We went to see the Carolina Chocolate Drops. Oh, and, uh, the best. I love we tried place. to go to this Indian place that I can't remember the name. I'm sorry, this Italian. We tried to go to this Italian place that I can't remember the name of. But if you Google... Italian restaurant, Albany, New York, it'll come up first, but we couldn't get in into there. So we wound up being redirected to this place, just like a block away in this kind of nondescript looking building down a couple of stairs. And that meal uh, is still, you know, vivid in my memory. Uh, I had swordfish. There was some risotto involved. Right. And uh, I think there was some pesto sauce in there somewhere. But anyway, whatever it was, the bread and the bread, you know, with the olive oil, just like that meal, I'll never forget. When you uh, when you eat Italian, do you like to have, do you have wine with it? What's your, what's your bev of choice? I don't know if I did that night, but uh, yeah, I, I used, you know, I used to drink a lot of wine. In fact, I even have a song called Red Wine. And this was a, a thing that lasted a while, you know, like it was my go-to beverage <laughs> except you know it was water and red wine that was kind of <laughs> it well coffee too but uh i stopped drinking it a little while ago because i wanted to i wanted to lose weight i realized that i didn't like the way i looked and i wanted to lose about 10 or 15 pounds so i cut out the wine and the carbs that's going to put a, a a stitch in the italian food then no carbs no wine Unfortunately, yes. I mean, I have to decide that I'm going to break my usual routine and just go for it if I'm going to have Italian. But no, yeah, no, it's not. It doesn't fit into what I normally eat these days. But I still, I still do it once in a while. Once in a while, I just say, "Well, it's time for some pasta and bread." You know, I can get away with it now. You got, you got to a place you want to be, I guess. Yeah. 
You've heard of keto, right? Yeah, the keto diet. This is what you did? I did it, you know, and it, it, I got really good results from it. And I also liked making the change, just, you know, like deciding I was going to do something and then actually doing it and making it work. It was, you know, it was cool. So I've heard of the keto diet, and I guess I know people who have done it, but I don't think I've really explored what exactly it is. Like, what are the parameters in the keto diet? Well, the principle of it is to retrain your body to burn uh, fat for energy rather than burn carbohydrates. And you do that by depriving your body of carbohydrates for a while. And then, and lo and behold, you know, I, I did it. And within about two months, I, I lost the weight I wanted to lose. You know, I didn't, you can't actually cut out carbohydrates 100%, I don't think. Or at least I never, I never have really done that, except maybe at first. You know, I sneak a few back in, but... Yeah. Uh, well, a lot of stuff has carbohydrates in it, but, you know, I think what they're maybe talking about is refined carbohydrates, like bread and pasta and stuff like that. Yeah. But the thing is, you know, like, in terms of taste and flavor and stuff like that, I, I haven't... I wouldn't have been able to do it if I didn't like the food and the way it tasted. My wife is a great cook and really knows what food is and what it's supposed to be. And she got this cookbook right when I started the whole thing with actually fantastic recipes in it. She just got it at Joanne Fabrics, the cookbook. <laughs> but, you know, she started making this stuff and, like, you know, she personalized the stuff a little bit. And, uh, again, if if I didn't like the way the food tasted, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to do it. I could never go on a diet where the food was bland or... So your your wife, it sounds like your wife does a lot of the cooking in your house. Uh, what What's your favorite dishes that she makes for you? I really like everything that she makes. But uh, she makes great collard greens. Oh, good. That's another uh, cuisine that I really love is southern food, you know, like soul food, you know, fried chicken and collard greens and all that kind of stuff. If it's good, then it's better than anything to me. And... Uh, you know, when I, fr I first got into it, I was, like, real critical about collard greens. You know, different places, I'd say, well, this is, you know, uh, that became important. And then at some point in time, my wife, actually, it was my brother John that told her, that suggested this to her. He said that the uh, collard green recipe in the Presley Family Cookbook oh. that you can get at Graceland or that you could get at Graceland... <laughs> He said, that's a really good recipe. So uh, she tried it, and then she kind of, like I said, she personalized it a bit. Now when I go into a restaurant, I never think that the collard greens are as good as what I get at home. So maybe that's my favorite thing she makes. But she makes, well, you know, just lots of great stuff. Elvis would know about collard greens, I think. I, You know, I find it interesting because we lived in Texas and, and Charleston, South Carolina, briefly, and so we had some exposure to Southern food. And one of the things that I noticed was the similarity between Southern food and Italian food. And there shouldn't be, but, you know, polenta and grits are basically the same thing, um, similar huh. at least. Um, and then you've got all these collard greens, but in a lot of Italian uh, recipes, you've got things like broccoli rabe, which is also a bitter green. So there's mm. there's a similarity there. And then you've got black-eyed peas, and then you've got lots of beans in Southern Italian cooking. And it shouldn't make sense because uh -huh. there's not a huge influx of Italians in the South. There are some, but there's not a huge influx. They came from mm -hmm. different places, which I haven't investigated too much yet, but just an observation. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, I, I, I get it, you know, what you're saying. To me, they're two very distinctive things from one another, but, but yeah, I, I, I understand. The, from an ingredient the standpoint, maybe not from a, from a flavor standpoint, you know. I, I pulled off on this uh, exit one time in Durham, North Carolina, and went to this place called the Pan Pan Diner, <laughs> which isn't there anymore, but they had a buffet in there, and uh, it just really knocked, knocked me for a loop. I loved it, and I, so I went back a bunch of times. And then at some point, I was talking to one of my friends down in North Carolina. I have a couple of friends that live there. Chris Stamey is this guy's oh, name. Oh, from the DBs. Yeah. And I said, uh, 
man, I really love this place in Durham, the Pan Pan Diner. And he's like, I, don't, I never heard of that one. He says, well, this, uh, let me take you to this great place in Charlotte. Uh, this is where everybody goes in Charlotte. And uh, we went. And I just I didn't think it was as good as the Pan Pan Diner. <laughs> but uh, it was okay. Anyway, I love that kind of stuff. Whenever I'm in the South, I always just, you know, seek out that kind of thing. Well, my my observation has been that sometimes, in fact, a lot of times, the best places you'll find are not the places that are written up in newspapers. They're often the places that are in strip malls because, you know, it's maybe an immigrant family. This is all the rent that they can afford. They're not doing marketing or advertising or anything. And I remember a road trip me and my buddy were taken from Cleveland to Chicago, and we pulled off somewhere in Ohio, went to an Indian restaurant again, and had a fantastic meal. And, you know, the place was, it, you would never know from looking at it, but sometimes you have to take those risks and you never know what you're going to get. Sometimes it'll be, oh, I can see why this place, <laughs> no one knows about it. And sometimes it's like the best meal you've had. Yeah, I, I can uh, concur with that. You know, remember the bottle rockets took me to this place in Madison, Wisconsin, this Indian place for the buffet and they said you're not going to believe how good this place is and you know like you said it, it was just in a strip mall just very ordinary looking place but it was really like a, it was a, on a higher level somehow just happened to be that way you know so you spend a lot of time on the road you travel around um doing concerts and whatnot you've talked about a few places but maybe are there places where when you have a a concert scheduled in a certain city, do you say in your mind, oh, okay, we're going to X, I don't know where, Ann Arbor, pick a town. We're going to Champaign, <laughs> Illinois. Um, there's a place I have to go when I'm in town there. Well, um, the first thing that comes to mind is Gus's fried chicken in Memphis. Okay. There are now some franchises around the country, and I've tried Gus is, you know, like in L.A. and in Austin. For me, the the only, you know, the only one that really is compelling is the one is the one in downtown Memphis. But yeah, for a while I was going to Memphis on a kind of a frequent basis, <clears throat> and more than once I went straight from the airport to Gus's. <laughs> I did I did that many times, and and then I, I would also go there for for breakfast on the, you know, on the days that I was leaving, I would sneak in an early trip to Gus's before I had to leave town. You know, you're hooked. And, uh, I haven't been, you know, I haven't been there in a while now. I haven't been in Memphis in about four or five years, but yeah, Gus's and Gus's fried chicken. It's, it's spicy. I've been reading about, I read in the New Yorker about this place in Nashville, Prince's fried chicken. Yeah. The, the hot chicken, right? Hot chicken. Yeah. And, uh, Gus's is, is hot. It's not, it sounds like Prince is, is like seriously very hot as opposed to Gus's, which is kind of mild, but, but you definitely taste the, the, the hot, the heat, you know, it's there. I didn't see that story in the New Yorker. Did they have, did they tell the backstory of Prince's chicken about the guy's wife who made the chicken for him um, the first time? And how it came about as, re as revenge or something. Yeah, right? Right. it's like he stayed out <laughs> yep. too late drinking and carousing, and and said, "Make me some <laughs> chicken." And she just dumped all the hot, spicy she could, trying to blow his head off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he liked it. And he's like, "All right, I'm opening a famous restaurant now." <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty great story. It is. It's one of the great, or whether it's true or not, really doesn't matter at this point. It's just one of the great food origin stories that there is, you know. Oh, yeah. You know, how are you keeping yourself busy during this during this lockdown, Marshall? I mean, I'm trying to I'm trying to keep the podcast going and I'm trying to do a lot of writing and whatnot. But, um, you know, it, it, it gets a little lonely with just me and the girlfriend here. What, what are you doing to keep busy? You know, I just I have a, just a kind of a sad feeling about the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, that just sort of hovers, you know. Um, but as far as activity, I don't really hate the idle time, you know, like I'm really lazy anyway. Well, that's not true, but uh, so far, I've, you know, I've, like I've just been catching up on reading books and mm. I, I got this app from the Criterion Collection. So I've just been kind of, you know, doubling down on movie watching 
and uh, and book reading and stuff like that. You know, I go out with the dog every day to walk. But the other thing that I've been doing is I've been going out in my in my studio. I hesitate to even call it a studio. It's just a room with a, with gear in it, and it's a messy room too. But um, I've been out there recording something for the first time in months, and I like the way it's going. That's good news. I do have this uh, recording project going on right, right now, um, reissuing some albums I made in the 90s mm-hmm. for a label called Razor and Tie. Yes. I got the masters back from them, which is cool. And uh, so it's a series, a reissue series. Uh, there are five albums altogether. The first one came out in January. It's called Miracle of Science. Yes. And each one, as they come out, they're, you know, they're, they include as a bonus thing uh, a 45. If you buy the vinyl, you get an actual 45 inside oh, the cool. album cover with two brand new tracks on it. So, you know, this last couple of weeks I've been out trying to stockpile the, the two tracks for the next single. I don't know when, the, like I said, the first one came out in January. The next one comes out, I'm not sure when, but I'll be ready when it when it happens. And I would assume we can uh, find out and follow that on your website? Yeah. Because I know that f- first one is on your website. Yeah, there are links posted on the website to where you can get the physical physical product if you want to. And then if, if you don't want that, you can go to all the usual digital platforms, right? We'll uh, we'll put links to all that stuff in the show notes. And are you still? I know you've uh, played a bunch of shows with the Smithereens guys. Um, in fact, I watched a whole concert someone had uploaded on YouTube. Mm. I don't know, probably <laughs> you know, audience style. You know, so it's not the greatest sound, but it was it was cool to watch. I really enjoyed it. Um, are you still doing that, with, or will you still continue to do that with those guys? Yeah, uh, you know, as we had stuff on the calendar of course that's not on the calendar anymore it's being shifted around but there were some shows actually just before the whole clamp down happened i did two smithereen shows and uh mike the bass player he lives out in the bay area oh okay in uh, northern california so he had to fly in and he was you know he was really alarmed about the whole thing right because right at that time, you know, the, the West Coast and the Northwest was really the epicenter of it. Now it's New York by far. Anyhow, Mike, you know, I just remember his kind of nervousness about the whole thing. And at first I was like, you know, I don't think it's going to be that big of a deal. But then just before the show, I went on my phone and looked at the New York Times. and I saw that South by Southwest had been canceled. Right, right. And I'm like, okay. Now it's. <laughs> I guess we've crossed over into uh, some kind of zone, you know. If Austin ain't doing music, and, you know it's serious. Yeah, that was a that was a gut punch because um, I'm working I'm working on a film project, and the production company I'm working with they they took a beating on that whole thing because they had eight films that were supposed to premiere at South by Southwest. Right, right. Ugh. And just got, they just got the rug yanked out from under them. But my God, you know, I mean, that's the kind of thing you can pick up the pieces from later on. But there's, I mean, it's, this is, it's, it's terrible. You know, it's a heartbreaker. We lived in Austin for a few years, and I, I don't think people who haven't been to Austin can really understand how big a deal South by Southwest is for that city. I mean, it's a it's a huge happening every single year. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's not only important for entertainment, but it's important for, you know, a lot of people's jobs depend on it, too. So, yeah, uh, gut punch is the is the correct term to use for them canceling that. Um, of the right decision, of course, but still. Hard. Yeah. So you mentioned a film project. Can, can you talk about it at all? Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming that it's going to get back on track <laughs> because I was, you know, I was getting pretty busy with it just before mid-March end of February. I was doing some stuff, but it's a documentary about record producer Tom Wilson, who, you know, and as far as I'm concerned, he's a pivotal figure in uh, popular music history as we know it and love it. And uh, it's just 
utterly weird that his story is untold, but I've been working on it for a while, and now I have a really great team of people that I'm working with. And, uh, you know, before I was sure that the movie would get made this year finally. But, you know, who who knows? We'll see. Can you give us a thumbnail of uh, Tom Wilson? Yeah, he was from Texas, from Waco. I still don't don't know a lot about his life in Waco, you know, and his his time growing up. I I still have to kind of delve into that, but the my the material I have, you know, the interviews and so forth picks up his story when he enrolls in college at Fisk University and uh after a year at Fisk, he uh had he developed TB, I think, and he, and he had to stay in bed for a whole year and then while he was recovering he uh enrolled he applied at harvard and wound up transferring there so he graduated harvard in 1954 i interviewed six of his harvard classmates including uh former ambassador walter carrington he was bill clinton's ambassador to nigeria and uh okay anyway tom was you know he was african-american a just super vibrant, magnetic person, brilliant. After Harvard, he started a re- he decided to start a record label. He was he was a music lover, just hardcore all his life. He started this label in in Cambridge, uh, 1955, Transition Records, and it was mainly a jazz label. That was his first love, and he discovered. Uh, have you ever heard of Cecil Taylor? No. Is he a jazz guy? Cecil Taylor is important. He was, he was, he was, a, he was uh, you know, again, he was somebody that just really lets something loose in the world that still resonates. Cecil Taylor is an important jazz artist. Uh, Tom Wilson, this, you could say that he discovered Sun Ra also. He oh, put wow. out the first Sun Ra album. You know, so right there, Cecil Taylor and Sun Ra, th- that's a story right there. But uh, anyway... His his own his label Transition Records it, it was short lived but a really interesting label you know with a great legacy and then uh, eventually 1963 he got hired at Columbia Records as the first ever African American staff producer A and R person and uh, I interviewed a, another producer from Columbia a guy named David Rubinson he said you know like a a young staff producer like himself or like Wilson they could sign artists that they wanted to work with, but mainly they had to do what the label asked them to do. You know, they would get told what to do by their bosses, right? And uh, Wilson got assigned to finish Bob Dylan's second album, The Freewheeling Bob Dylan, and he wound up sticking with Dylan through that whole period where Bob went from, you know, being a lone troubadour kind of folk singer to being a rock star. The last thing that Wilson did with Dylan was like a Rolling Stone. So oh. Wilson Wilson took him through that whole transformation and he had a proactive role in the way, in the way things unfolded too, you know, like I've managed to corroborate all that. Anyway, after that, things kind of blew up with him and Bob Dylan and so Wilson engineered a, a graceful exit from Columbia Records and he went to MGM Verve for this lucrative uh, staff position there. You know, he's like at that label, he was head of pop recording, and the first two acts that he signed were The Velvet Underground and Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. <laughs> and these are all people, you know, not not Dylan. Dylan was already signed to Columbia and everything like that, but all the other people I've named are people that literally wouldn't... Oh, so, okay, before I say this, i got to make an exception for Sun Ra, too, because he was already on his own path. But Cecil Taylor and uh, Zappa and the Velvet Underground would literally not have gotten out of the gate without Tom Wilson. And the same is true of Simon and Garfunkel. Wilson Whoa. invented them, you know. At least, I mean, at first, you know, they 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 got the lucky tap on the shoulder from God and had a hit record that Wilson created for them. And then from there, of course, they went on. And on and on and on and on, but they're you know the initial. But you need that guy. You need that guy at the beginning, and he was that guy. He was that guy for those for those people, and each of those people are, you know, they say that when the first Velvet Underground album came out, you know, only only ten thousand people bought it, but all those ten thousand <laughs> people started up, you know, the old cliche about right, right. how influential they've been, right? 
Sure, sure. So uh, anyway, that's who Tom Wilson was, and, and that's just you know like the bullet points of his career. But you know, just like his story is is a, is a story that people should know. It sounds fascinating. I'm glad that it, this movie's getting made. This documentary is getting made because it sounds like it's something that uh, that definitely needs to be known. Um, Marshall, before we let you go. It's just it's so interesting to talk to you because you have such an encyclopedic knowledge of all this stuff. And you said you've been uh, trying to catch up on some reading and some movies. Give us a couple of recommendations while we're holed up of stuff that maybe we can check out that we should check out that we <laughs> might find interesting. OK, well, like I said, I have this app from, from the Criterion Collection, which is this amazing repository of movies from, you know, like like from the beginning of cinema right up until right now i watched this one uh last week called dr mabuse the gambler this is a fritz lang film it's it's a silent movie which is fine with me and uh from 1922 that was i love that one uh before that i was watching a bunch of movies by this director from india called uh, i can't say the name properly but it's like satyajit ray S-A-T-Y-G-I-T-J-I-T, last name Ray. But I'm watching a few of his films. One's called one called The Big City that I really like. But I like him. Oh, one called The Music Room, which is a really killer. And then book-wise, I had Salman Rusty's most recent one laying around, so I read that. I forget. I've read about four or five books since this whole thing happened. Well, some good recommendations there. And uh, Marshall Crenshaw, just fantastic to talk to you such an interesting fellow and um yeah. it's it's just been great and all i can say is uh we'll definitely look forward to seeing you you know back out playing and looking forward to seeing some re-releases of these records and some new stuff from you too until then wash your hands stay safe yeah. stay healthy thanks Brent. good wishes and uh thanks for reaching out to me okay stay well you know, that was a great conversation with Marshall Crenshaw. But I got to say, my favorite part of the whole thing was when Marshall dressed me down for my Beatles-centric views. Totally deserved, by the way. And he did it in the nicest way possible. Well, next week, we'll be talking about Chicago dogs and Chicago handshakes and a combo. And trust me, the Chicago handshake is not what you think. And neither is the combo. We're talking all things Chicago next week on Destination Eat Drink. So don't miss that. And while you're waiting for that to drop next Friday, head on over to DestinationEatDrink.com. I've got tons of great foodie travel guides there. And I've also written a bunch of articles about different foods and different places that I've enjoyed visiting, including an article about Bordeaux's special cake called the Canale which is a brand new article, and you can see that on my blog at DestinationEatDrink.com. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and Ed Silla. Ed's a great guy. We thank him for all his hard work. I'm Brent Peterson, and until next time, I will see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.